Okay, turn with me to Matthew 7. Uh, we last, uh, when we last looked at this, which was over a month ago now, uh, we're looking at the final section of this chapter, verses 21 to 29. And uh, because it has been so long since we looked at it, I'm going to do a little bit more review than I normally would do on a Sunday uh, morning. But uh, I want just to, to get the uh, flow of this. Um, we are looking at this passage. Jesus is describing two types of people that are self-deceived. Uh, there's those who are characterized by empty words in verses 21 to 23, and there, there are those who have empty hearts in verses 24 to 27. Uh, the first group makes mere verbal professions of faith and deeds for God. The second group has a mere intellectual knowledge of the gospel that they hear. Uh, the first group says but does not do. The second group hears but does not do. Uh, let's look at the first group a little bit. We've been over this before, but like I say, I want to remind you. Uh, verses 21 to 23, uh, read the passage. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Uh, we saw that this double use of Lord, Lord is a way for these people at the last judgment to acknowledge to Jesus that he is both master and Yahweh. Uh, they're saying, we know you're God. We know you're Yahweh. We acknowledge all that your deity involves. You're the master. You're God. We acknowledge you're true and righteous and just and holy. We submit to your authority. So they're using this doubling of kurios uh, to try to demonstrate to him that they are submissive and devoted and dedicated to him. And the fact that they have claimed so many outstanding works in his name tells us that they are especially fervent religious workers. And this specifically, they are those who, are, who claim to be Christians. Now, the term on that day in verse 22 is used as a reference to the day of the Lord, uh, a term that's used throughout Scripture to refer to the period of divine judgment which begins with the rapture of the church. It encompasses both the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. And after the millennial kingdom is over, there will be one final rebellion against God that will be led by Satan. That will be crushed. Satan and his minions will be uh, condemned to hell, Jesus will take his seat upon the great white throne for the final judgment, which is discussed in Revelation 20. And at the time of the great white throne judgment, many millions of professing believers will have already spent centuries in hell awaiting their final judgment. And that seems to add to their sense of fervency as they find themselves standing before Jesus to be judged. And so they're desperate as they plead their case to Jesus, saying, Lord, Lord, and reciting all the things they did in his name. Verse 21 says, but everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why not? Because not everyone who says that actually did the will of the Father who is in heaven. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
So it is not the one who simply claims the Lord, but the one who does the Father's will who will enter heaven. The issue is the obedience to the word of God. And as a result, he says that he will say to them, depart from me, get out of my presence forever. Why? Because you practice lawlessness. He's condemning them. He's commanding them to leave his presence because instead of doing the will of his father, instead of living by all of the righteous principles that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, they continue to do lawlessness. Uh, so profession alone is valueless. In fact, to invalidly claim Christ is taking the Lord's name in vain in the ultimate sense. It's the epitome of violating God's name to claim Christ when he isn't yours. Uh, and so uh, we must be consumed with doing the will of God. You say, but what if I don't? What if I fail? Well, there's no doubt that we're going to fail, but that's where we come when we come for forgiveness. And that itself is part of the righteous standard. The righteous standard Jesus speaks of assumes we will fail. And when we fail, we'll be bef coming before him confessing our sin. He's not, Jesus is not saying, here's the perfect standard, and if you ever fail, you're out. He's saying, here's the perfect standard, and part of the perfect standard is that when you sin, you deal with it by confessing it. That's God's standard. And I would go so far as to say that if the truths Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount are not the direction of your life, albeit not the perfection of it, uh, it doesn't matter what confession you've made or whether you've been baptized or attended this church or any other sound church for many years. You're not a Christian. Uh, in John 6, 28, the people said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And verse 29 says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Uh, so where do you start with the will of God? You believe on Christ. The only thing acceptable to God is a righteousness that is the product of repentant faith in Jesus Christ, and that produces good works. And if those are not present, then no matter what you say, it doesn't matter. Then we looked next at, started looking, we haven't finished it, at empty hearts, the people with empty hearts, verses 24 to 27. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now in this passage, Jesus presents an illustration which contrasts two men, each of whom builds a house. One man thinks nothing about the foundation of his house and builds it on the sand. He's called a foolish man in verse 26. The other man seeks to be sure that the foundation of his house is built on solid rock. He's called a wise man in verse 24. This is a powerful commentary on people who have a head knowledge of God's way of entering the kingdom, but an empty heart. Uh, you'll notice that he says in both 24 and 26, everyone who hears... Uh, these are people who hear. They hear the message. They listen. They understand it. Uh, but in verse 24, the wise ones act upon his message. In verse 26, the fools do not. Uh, these are the people who are deceived into thinking they're Christians because they know so much about Christianity. They, they have a lot of intellectual knowledge. They can recite Bible verses and debate theology, but their heart is unchanged. 
And again, Jesus is reminding us that God's standard of righteousness is required for entering the kingdom of God. Uh, and unless your life is built on that standard, no matter what it looks like, no matter what you know in your head, no matter how feverishly you build your house of spiritual activity, when the flood comes, you're going to get washed away if all you have is head knowledge. Uh, these are all people who profess to know God, who think they're in the kingdom, who think they're Christians. Verse 24 begins, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Verse 26 begins, everyone who hears these words of mine. They both belong to the visible body of believers. Perhaps they both read scripture and attend meetings at the church. They're both busy forming some kind of spiritual value system, building up some kind of edifice of spiritual activity. Uh, but there's a tremendous difference. One's wise and one is a fool. Uh, because one builds on rock, the other builds on sand. And as we saw before, the foundation is invisible. The, once a, the, the structure is up, you can't see the foundation anymore. And so it becomes difficult to tell. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is very simple. Lots of people hear Christ's teaching, but the only ones who will enter the kingdom are those who do what Jesus commands. That's the bottom line. The implication is that even those who disobey uh, believe that they belong to Christ and make a convincing profession of faith in him. Uh, they hear God's word, they recognize it's God's word, but they wrongly believe that simply knowing and recognizing it is enough to please God and guarantee them a place in the kingdom. But they are no different than those who say, Lord, Lord, and do amazing religious works, but are actually practicing lawlessness. And it's only when the storm of persecution comes that you find out who the real believers are. Now, there are several similarities here I want you to take note of. First, both individuals build a house. They have both heard the gospel. They both know the way of salvation. They're both involved in spiritual activity. They're both involved in something that has to do with the kingdom of God. Yet, second, it's apparent they both built their house, that is, their spiritual lives, in the same area or location because the same storm hits both houses. What's the point? It's that true believers and false believers invariably live side by side. They're on the same block. They attend the same church. They go to the same Bible studies. They're so similar in terms of the building they build that they are indistinguishable to most people. Third, they apparently build it the same way because the Lord says the only difference is the foundation. So they apparently built the same kind of house. From all appearances, their lives look very similar. From all outward appearances, they're both religious and theologically orthodox and moral and serve in the church support it financially, and are good citizens of their community. It looks all much the same until you really come to the crux of the matter, and that's the foundation. And the difference between these two uh, is immeasurably important. The differences are immeasurably more important than the similarities. So the key is to understand that one does act upon God's word, a life of obedience, and the other does not act upon his word, a life of disobedience. By far the greatest difference between the specifications that the builders use and the way they build is the foundation they use. Jesus says the wise man builds his house upon the rock, whereas the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And the man's a fool who builds on the sand, obviously, because when the storm comes, it's going to undermine the sand. 
the house is going to fall and it won't just topple over. Jesus says great was its fall. In other words, it's going to fall flat, be totally destroyed. But when the house is built on a foundation of solid rock, the storm can come and it isn't going to fall. And remember, who is Jesus' target audience here? The Pharisees that are sitting there. He, they had a complex, involved set of religious traditions which they regarded as having great value before God. And he's saying all your traditions are external, superficial, unstable. Sure, they prayed. Sure, they fasted and gave alms to the poor. But only as a public show to parade their supposed piosity and to try to enhance their reputation with others. They had a religion of externals, and that is shifting sand, composed entirely of opinions, speculations, and human standards. So we need to examine our own hearts to make sure that we're not one of those like them. That's where we stopped four weeks ago. So let's continue. The question that comes to mind here is, what is the rock that Jesus is referring to for the foundation? Many say, well, the rock is God. And that's certainly true that God is our rock. And after all, Psalm 19:14 says, Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 18:2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. So you could make the case that the rock is God, that you're building your life on God, and that, of course, is true. But the Pharisees would say that too. Or you could say that the rock is Christ. In both Acts 4:11 and 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7, the Apostle Peter refers to Christ as the chief cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says that Christ is the rock. So, so there are plenty of people who claim that they've built their life on Christ. So it's, there's a lot of those. So it's got to be more than that. But as you look at this passage, I think Jesus made it clear what the rock is. What does he say in verse 24? Everyone who hears what? These words of mine and does what? acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. What is the rock? It's obedience to the word of God. That's the rock. Yes, God is a rock. Yes, Christ is the chief cornerstone. But I believe what our Lord is saying here is simply this. These words of mine become the rock bed foundation of the church. And when they are obeyed, they reveal those who are the true church, the redeemed church. Here's what Bible scholar Donald Carson writes about this. Quote, Jesus is not the foundation referred to in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. In fact, the focus is not quite centered on the foundation's adopted rock and sand, but on the two builders and their entire projects. The man who builds his house upon a shifting foundation is likened to the person who hears Jesus' words, but who does not put them into practice. The man who builds his house upon a rock is likened to the person who, does, who not only hears Jesus' words, but also puts them into practice. The difference between the two houses is therefore to be likened to the difference between obedience and disobedience, end quote. So Jesus is saying that the person who lives a life in which he only hears and never does has sand for a foundation. And what does the sand represent? Human will. Human opinions, human attitudes, the shifting sands of human philosophy. Even though you listen to what Jesus says and you read the scriptures and you may even claim to believe the Bible, if you don't do it, you're not on the rock. On the other hand, the wise man who hears the word of God and builds his life on obedience to God's word has a rock solid foundation. 
There's a very significant text in John 8. It's found in verses 30 and 31. Verse 30 tells us, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now, that's certainly a good thing. In most evangelical churches, we would sign them up as members and get them involved in some kind of ministry. So many came to believe in him. They heard, they listened, they took it in, they accepted it. But then listen to what he says in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You see, it isn't just the hearing and the believing. It's the continuing in obedience to the word of God. That's the rock. So please listen. Don't be deluded. Jesus doesn't care what you verbally claim. If you don't do what he says and commands, you're deceiving yourself. Unless you build your house on biblical truth, you are deceiving yourself. You remember what James said in James 1.22? It says, but prove yourself doers of what? The word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's the same thing Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hear it and don't do it, you're self-deceived. And then James continues, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, for once he's looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, if you're not doing it, it's not having any effect on your life or your destiny. But by way of contrast, verse 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So obedience to the word is the key. In 1 John 2, 3-6, this is a passage you should underline or highlight in your Bible. 1 John 2, 3-6, John writes, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the law of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Paul said the same thing very powerfully in Titus 1.16. Speaking of unbelievers, he said, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So the New Testament epistles teach us the same thing that Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. The difference between a true believer and a false believer is the issue of obedience to the word of God. So don't be self-deceived. Building on the rock is obeying the word of God. Look at your life. Examine it. Is it a life that belongs, that, that longs beyond any other desire to obey the word of God? Or is it disobeying and always and ever constantly justifying that disobedience? So obedience is the key word here. Folks, listen carefully. If you don't remember anything else I say this morning, remember this. The only validation that you will ever have of your salvation is a life of obedience. It is the only possible proof that you truly recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. 
The only validation you will ever have of your salvation is a life of obedience. It is the only possible proof that you recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because if there's no obedience, then your confession that Jesus is Lord is nothing more than a verbal exercise. So then the house built on the rock is the life of obedience. And what kind of life is that? It's the kind of life Jesus has described throughout this whole sermon. It's the kind of life that has a biblical view towards self as expressed in the Beatitudes. It's the kind of life that has a biblical attitude towards the world, seeing itself as something to preserve the world and light the world, not to be a part of it. It's a life characterized by submission to the Word of God, not changing it or altering it, but accepting every stroke and letter of it. Jesus is presenting the kind of life built on the rock that has a biblical attitude towards morality, which recognizes that it's not merely external conformity to the Word, but internal conformity to the Word. It's a life characterized by a biblical attitude about words, what you say toward towards deeds, what you do, towards motives, the reasons you do what you do. It's a biblical attitude towards money, towards things, a biblical attitude towards people, basically everything he's touched on in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying that if your life is committed to obedience to these things, you're on the rock. So when I hear someone come along and say, oh, Yes, I know that my child or my spouse or my family member is born again because they prayed a prayer, they, they walked an aisle, they raised their hand, they, they, there hasn't been any changes in their life that reflect obedience to the word, though, then I question the reality of that profession. Salvation involves a recognition of God's standard, an overwhelming sense of sinfulness and a pleading for God's mercy and forgiveness so that you may receive his righteousness because you desire to fulfill his word. You can't say, well, I'm willing to receive Christ because I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to have to obey everything he says in the Bible that I need to do. If that's your attitude, then you're not a Christian. Through the years, people have said to me, well, you know, my family member says that he or she is a Christian because he or she believes Jesus died for their sins. But they never attend church. In fact, they're angry with the church because they say that all we ever do is make them feel bad about themselves. They want to hear uplifting messages about all the good they're doing and not all the stuff about sin and the need to live a righteous life. Well, I'm sorry, but the fact of the matter is they probably don't truly know Christ and they're self-deceived. So we've seen the similarities and some of the differences, but let's look more deeply into the differences that Jesus presents here. Here's another one. The wise man built his house the hard way. The foolish man built his house the easy way. He didn't dig down to the bedrock. He just built it on the sand. He didn't search for a solid foundation of rock on which to build. He just found a section of sand in a desirable location and started building. It's just like taking the wide gate with the broad road. It's the easy way. A fool does it the easy way for two reasons. First, fools are full of pride, so they think they know best. Proverbs 14, 16 says, A fool is arrogant and careless. I'm the first to admit that I'm not good at all with my hands 
in terms of building and repairing things. And Marcia can certainly validate that. But I have learned one thing through the years, and that's if you do it right the first time, you don't have to do it again. Uh, and I've learned that because I have a propensity for doing things wrong the first time. <laughs> Why? Because I think, well, that's good enough. That'll hold up. So a fool is always in a hurry. He doesn't care that he's building on sand. He doesn't have to dig. He doesn't have to prepare a solid foundation. He just slaps it up and hope it holds. In terms of theology, the, the fool always wants the quick answer. Just tell me how to jump on this Jesus bandwagon so I can get to heaven. Uh, and there are plenty of pastors who will give them that kind of gospel presentation. Uh, there's no time for building a deep sense of the holiness of God. No, no time for teaching the doctrine of sin. No time for building a sense of conviction. No time for coming to grips with the status of one's soul before God. And the quick and easy to believe gospel message that many people are presenting these days does nothing but pile up a lot more fools than it does wise men. Jesus said no one builds a tower until he counts the cost. Uh, but much of modern day evangelicalism is all about getting as many professions of faith as possible without presenting anything that might offend the hearer. And as a result, the gospel message is watered down so that it doesn't resemble anything that Jesus taught. He said the narrow gate is small. The way is hard to find, and there's, there are few who truly find it. And then the path is hard and difficult. But people today often present a gospel message that anyone's willing to accept because it doesn't require any kind of submission to Christ or change your obedience in their lifestyle. Secondly, a, not only is a fool proud and arrogant and thinks their way is best, but they're also superficial that they always choose to build the easy way. How many people do you know who claim that they believe in Christ, who say they heard the gospel and accepted it, and yet there's absolutely nothing in their life to give evidence of that? It's, it's just a superficial belief, and we live in an age of superficiality. Uh, superficiality requires little planning, little effort, little attention to detail, and little concern for quality or standards. The person who's superficial looks for that what is pleasing rather than that which is right, uh, for what is enjoyable rather than that which is true, for what satisfies himself rather than what satisfies God. He looks to Christianity for instant results, instant pleasure, instant rewards. He cares about spiritual highs, but nothing about spiritual depths. On the other hand, while the foolish man's in a big hurry, the wise man's not. In fact, over in the parallel account in Luke 6, 47 and 48, Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, a torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. He went for the rock of the word of God. He dug the, dug the sand of human opinion and self-will out of the way, and he went for the rock of obedience to God's word. Now, what does it mean to dig deep? Well, first, it means you're not in a hurry. No quickie conversion, no light confession. One writer has said there are some people who say they are saved before they have any sense that they're even lost. 
Another Bible teacher I read said that some people present the gospel so poorly that even the non-elect don't know enough to reject it. But those who claim Christ as their own are willing to dig deep. They have thought through the responsibility. They don't rush into some profession to later abandon it or to be thrown out in the final judgment. They count the cost. They consider what they're doing. They dig deep. They're not in a hurry. In the parallel of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of spreading seed on four kinds of soil, and one of them was rocky soil. And later he explained the parable to his disciples, and he said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. I've seen that so many times. The person says, oh, I profess Christ. I'm a Christian. And as soon as you start teaching them the word of God and what it demands, they're out of there. They don't want it. That's not the way it is with the one who digs deep. He digs deep on the rock bed of God's word in order that he might obey. Listen, the person who digs deep to, uh, to enter in, he takes the hard things. He doesn't care about the labor. He minimizes the difficulty in order to build on the rock. Sure, it's a lot easier to go the way of the flesh. Sure, it's tough to restrict yourself to go God's way. Another thing about the man who digs deep is he's teachable. The Pharisees weren't teachable. You couldn't tell them anything. They didn't even want to hear it. And there are so many people like that. They profess Christ, but they don't want to hear what that demands. They don't want to hear what that requires. They don't want to count the cost. They don't want to learn the right way to build their life. They want to go with their own ideas, their own goals, their own self-will, their own designs, their own purposes, and go down their own pathway. And when you go to them and try to teach them what is right to do, they don't want to hear it. It's not because they're unteachable Christians, it's because they're pretend Christians. And that's what our Lord is saying. The one who digs deep empties himself of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. He knows he has nothing to offer to God. He knows he's not commendable. He's overwhelmed with his sin. He makes the maximum effort to strive to enter in. He makes the maximum effort to treasure the word of God in his heart so that he may not sin. He's interested in a genuine love relationship with Jesus, not a routine of spiritual activity. He doesn't build on visions. He doesn't build on experiences. He doesn't build on supposed miracles. He builds on the word of God, and he builds for God's glory, not his own. Listen, many people want spiritual power. Just look at Simon in Acts 8. He wanted to buy the power of the Spirit of God. And Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Many people want the power. They just aren't interested in living according to God's standards. They're a sham. They're building on sand. They want to know what Jesus can do for them. They want the goodies, chasing signs and wonders, but not committed to Christ at all. And what happens ultimately? Well, according to verses 25 and 27, the day of reckoning is going to come and that just sums up the whole judgment. I, I don't think you can say, well, the rain is such and such, and the flood refers to such and such, and the wind is this other thing. Uh, people get carried away with all that kind of stuff. What it's simply saying is that one day when a storm came, 
And it was obvious, it became obvious real quick which house was built on sand and which house was built on the rock. And someday there's going to come a divine accounting. And that's what it's saying. God is going to blow the wind and rain and flood of judgment. And when he does, some are going to stand and some are going to fall. Whether your religion is true or false, it's going to be tried. And whether you're part of the tares or part of the wheat, it's going to be determined. You see, someday the chief winnower is going to come and he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. And he's going to blow the wind of judgment and those who have built their lives on the rock are going to stand. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we are to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Why are we waiting for him? Because our faith is genuine. If your faith is genuine, you will be delivered from the wrath to come. There's going to come a judgment time. It tells us in Revelation 20 specifically when that's going to happen. Let's look at that. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whom presence, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the final great white throne judgment. And I believe that's, that will be the day when the cries will echo through that great judgment hall, Lord, Lord, and echoing back will be the reverberation of his reply, I never knew you, depart from me. People are deluded. Satan's a liar, right? He is a deceiver. His ultimate deception is to make someone believe they are a Christian when they're not. Because if you don't know you've got a problem, you're not looking for the answer anymore. The day of judgment is coming, so you better look at your life. Verse 21 of our text in Matthew 7 tells us that not everyone who thinks they're going to heaven is, actually is. Look at the foundation. They may, they may be respectful of Christ. They may be fervent. They may be active in the church and public proclamation of the gospel. They may be busy with spiritual activity. They may be hanging around in the same church as true believers. Their spiritual house may look exactly the same as true believers' houses. But when the judgment comes, it'll collapse and be devastated because it's built on sand, the sand of their own will, their own way, rather than the rock of obedience to his word. All I can say from the bottom of my heart is that everyone who claims to follow Christ must go back and check the foundation to make sure it's built on the rock of obedience and submission to God's word and Jesus Christ and not on the sandy foundation of their own self-will and self-deceptions. So this unequaled, unparalleled sermon masterpiece ends with a devastating warning and it ends with judgment. And that teaches us an important point. 
no presentation of the gospel is complete unless it includes a warning of doom to the one who rejects it. It has to end that way. It's not, well, if you don't come to Christ, you're going to miss out on a lot of nice things. Rather, it's if you don't come to Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. That's not a message people necessarily want to hear. They will accuse you of being one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. And most of them will think your gospel message is too harsh and unkind. Most people want to hear what I call the Joel Osteen gospel. Uh, because they go away feeling good about themselves even though they never actually heard the gospel. And they remain satisfied with themselves just as they are and unconcerned about their sin and lack of obedience to God's word. But telling people the truth about their eternal future if they reject Jesus is the most loving thing you can do for them. Because if you water it down to make it easier to believe, you run the risk of putting people on the broad way to destruction rather than the narrow way to eternal life. You see, the gospel calls for a decision. So I ask you this morning, what is your decision? You say, Bruce, why are you asking us that question? We're the people who've professed faith in Jesus. We're, we're faithful to church. We even come to Sunday school every week. And the, we go to the men's study on Friday mornings. We go to the ladies' study on Thursday mornings. We're not the people you need to be asking this question to. Well, many people will stand before the great white throne and will say the very same things. The Lord will tell them, I never knew you. So I want you to do as Paul instructed us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And the apostle Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter 1, 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. We're to do our own due diligence in our profession of faith in Christ. Do we truly trust him and him alone? And are we walking in obedience to God's word? That's the evidence of the genuineness of your salvation. You see, in Proverbs 30, verse 12, it says, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. They think they're right with God, but they're not. You say, how do I know? Well, first, see if your lifestyle is included in any of these lists that we find in Scripture. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of those these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 1 Corinthians 6.10 Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You say, Bruce, I'm glad I don't fall into any of those categories, so I'm good. Well, then consider Galatians 5.19-21. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And then Revelation 21.8 tells us, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those verses give us a far more comprehensive list. And those whose lives are characterized by those things, who claim to be Christians, they can claim to be Christians all they want to. But it's nothing but empty words and empty hearts. Because if those sins and behaviors are the pattern of your life, you have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Don't let anyone, whether a pastor or a family member or your best friend, tell you any different. Now, I certainly understand that there are times when all of us stumble into sin, but if any of those sins are the pattern of your life and you are unrepentant and not actively seeking to change and walk in obedience to his word, you're not in his kingdom. Don't be deceived. If you find yourself astonished at this and asking like the disciples, well, then who can be saved? Then you're right back to the end of verse 14 in our Matthew 7, there are few who find it, speaking of the narrow gate. So Jesus confronts the empty words and the empty hearts of those who professed to be in the kingdom but were not. Well, what was the result of the sermon? What was the response that day? Was there a great revival with tremendous conversions? No. Look at verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were repentant, right? No, they weren't repentant. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. All they did was analyze his sermon. The response to the most magnificent sermon ever given was as astonishing as the negative way uh, in a negative way, as the sermon itself was in a positive way. The text says they were amazed. The ESV uses the word astonished. There are a lot of words that we could use to describe their response. It means they were awestruck. They were totally dumbfounded. They were baffled and bewildered. When I looked it up in the Greek lexicon, it literally means that they were knocked out of their senses. I like the way one language reference expressed it. It says it means to be astounded to the, such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. In today's vernacular, vernacular, we would say it blew their minds. Listen to how John MacArthur describes what Jesus' listeners experienced that day that resulted in their minds being completely blown by what they heard. He writes, quote, they had never heard such comprehensive, insightful words of wisdom, depth, insight, and profundity. They had never heard such straightforward and fearless denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees or such a black and white presentation of the way of salvation. They had never heard such a fearful warning about the consequences of turning away from God. They had never heard such a powerful and demanding description of true righteousness or such a relentless description and condemnation of self-righteousness." And why did it have such an impact on them? Because they were blown away that anyone would sit there and say all of those things with such authority, such power, such dynamic teaching. The word Matthew uses here refers to the power and privilege that an absolute monarch exercises as the king. 
And that fits perfectly because that's who Matthew is presenting Jesus to be, the sovereign king. And not only did Jesus speak with authority, but he also did not teach like their scribes. How did the scribes teach? They just quoted other respected rabbis from the past to give authority to what they said. Yes, I recognize that I occasionally quote other Bible teachers like I just did with uh, the MacArthur quote. But what the scribes and Pharisees did was just quote one ancient scribe after the next, after the other. They had very little original material and they expressed their own, they never expressed their own ideas or interpretations of scripture. They just piled up a whole lot of other fallible people as their source rather than going back to what God said in the scriptures. But Jesus spoke with authority because he was the one who wrote the scriptures and was thus best able to interpret and explain its meaning and to command their response to it. And so it blew them away. They had never heard such wisdom, such depths, a scope of understanding. Every dimension of human life was touched on with an economy of words that was breathtaking. They'd never heard such deep insight into the law of God or the sin of man. They'd never heard such fearful warnings about hellfire and judgment. They'd never heard someone directly confront the religious leaders of the time. They were utterly shocked that he didn't use anyone else as an authority, but seemed to stand upon his own authority. And that's where it ends. They're left in a state of shock. All those things were important to them all the things that were important for them to hear and it was unavoidable that they would need to, that they would be astounded because his teaching was indeed amazing but what they needed was not amazement but repentance not amazement but belief not amazement but obedience jesus didn't teach all of those things just to amaze them but to save them they'd never heard anyone speak the truth with such absolute power and authority like he did but they didn't respond the right way. I mean, they couldn't believe that a man would say he was the fulfillment of the law. That a man would say he was the determiner of righteousness. That he was the corrector of the scribes and Pharisees. They couldn't believe that a man would claim to be God, the judge of all. The one who would one day pass judgment on everyone. They couldn't believe that a man like this would say he was the king. And so all they got out of this great sermon was astonishment. So then what's your response? Your life is either built on rock or sand or on disobedience or obedience. And here therein is the only available verifier of the legitimacy of your faith. I pray to God that your faith is in Christ and is founded on the rock of his word. Well, that finally brings us to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and uh, I didn't want to stop for questions during the process of this final section because it just seemed to flow as one unit. But are there any questions or comments now? Yes, Janetta. I just wanted to say that I know the scripture tells us to examine ourselves on a regular basis to examine ourselves to see what we see. And that first John is those and these are the evidences yes. that you are Yeah. Chapter one, he just jumps back and forth from each verse in chapter one. Here's the guy who's not a believer. Here's the guy who is. All through there. Anyone else? 
Okay. We're amazed. <laughs> you're amazed. I hope you're more than amazed. I hope you're more than amazed. Terry, brother, would you close us with prayer this morning?